Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. We, we returned to the book of Romans last week where the Apostle Paul finished up his condemnation of the, the religious man, and, and today he is going to bring us to his final point concerning mankind's guilt before, before God, and We've been walking in this dungeon of depravity for, for a while now, and it's, it's pretty dark. And, 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 and you might relate it to what you felt whenever you were in the first two chapters of, uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, uh, it's a literary device. It's on purpose. You're, you're supposed to feel the weight of this, this guilt after guilt after, after guilt, and and Paul is going to take a couple more hammer blows today at the, the, the nails in the, in the top, in the top of the, the, the coffin. And I'm going to bring you up to the exit very soon. The, the, the Bible is, and, but Paul's got one concluding thought that's going to tie it all together this morning. And I'll warn you ahead of time, whenever we, we, we get there, we've been down here so long, our eyes have been adjusted, and we'll take two sermons on this passage and uh, take two times to get through it, and then on Easter, we'll get to verse 21, which is the, the light of the gospel. I wish I could tell you I planned it that way, but that is the Lord's doing, and uh, when that happens, the light of the gospel is going to come blazing in. It's going to be like a dam breaking with gospel truth, and I can't wait to get there, because that's really Paul's primary point in, uh, in, in writing. I heard uh, one man say this this past week, the book of Romans is, is like a fine watch with all of its intricacies and the gears and the details there, uh, and yet a watch has one purpose, and that's to tell time. And so you, you, can, you can marvel at Romans and all of its theology and everything that's there, but Paul's primary purpose is that we would know the gospel. We would hear the gospel. He wants to teach us about the gospel of God's righteousness. That's his prevailing purpose in writing the letter. And that's good news for sinners like us. And he gave us an overview of that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, unto the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is, is revealed and He'll explain that gospel in depth in the rest of the, of the book. But for two chapters, Paul has been preparing us for that message, and, which is coming. He condemned the immoral Gentiles uh, who suppressed the truth in chapter 1, and then the religious and moral person in chapter 2 who perverts the truth. And, and today, he'll explain that all mankind is under sin going to do that in verses 9 through 20 of, of chapter 3. And the verses before us teach what is called the total depravity uh, of man. It's a truth that reminds us without God breaking into our prison and intervening into our hearts, we, we would have no hope whatsoever as, as human beings. And Paul saves this, this bludgeoning truth for, for the end and it, it's not a, a sermon that, that will lift up your self-esteem, but it will show you where you can rightly esteem yourself and, and how to have the joy and the peace that, that comes from, from God. Because Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, takes us to the root of our, of our problem. You see, the, the religious man of chapter 2, you remember, was listening to Paul go through all of the indictments of chapter 1, and he's saying, that's exactly right. Those immoral people, you immoral man, you're irreligious, and you're perverted, and you're not going to get into heaven. And then the immoral sinner comes along after chapter 2, listens to Paul, and, uh, go over all of the condemnations of the of the, the moral man in chapter 2 and the, the man from chapter 1 says, that's right, you hypocrite, you, you don't even practice what you preach. I can see you're not getting into heaven. And the Apostle Paul comes along in chapter 3 and says, you're both right. The other is not going to heaven. 
but you're wrong in the fact that you're thinking that justifies you somehow. Because you're not compared to one another. You're compared to God's perfections. You're compared to God himself. And and in chapter 3, Paul compares all men to the righteousness of the Lord. And when we're compared there, nobody comes up with a positive outcome. Uh, Verse 10, a verse that you probably know, well, I've memorized it during the, the Romans road declares the verdict whenever all human beings are are compared to the Lord, His righteous bar. Verse 10 of chapter 3, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, or no, not one, as I memorized it. And with that statement, standing at the headwaters of this, this, this list of accusations, Paul launches into a thorough evidence-based exposure of mankind in light of God's righteousness. You might think of it like somebody going down into that proverbial dungeon that we've been talking about, going down in the midst of that dungeon with, with sunlight. We, we have this gospel torch that we're carrying along, and we want to look at that a lot because it's just dark, and we're looking in the cell, and we're going, yeah, that, that's horrible. I want to remind us I have the light right here. Uh, think of it like, like somebody just just uh, uh, rather than looking back and forth between the, the two cells, here's uh, cell one, cell two, comparing the men, like somebody who just rips, uh, rips the, the roof off of the, of the dungeon and allows the noonday light to come in. What, what exposure there, there would be. Imagine how much dirt and filth that you could see if that, if that happened. And that's what Paul does. And in this real life sunlight, kind of trial, God makes the declaration that, that all people are unclean and that none measure up, hence the title of our, of our sermon. And what a fitting day to hit this text on April 2nd, uh, the day after April Fool's Day, or as it's been called, National Atheist Day, because the Bible says the fool in his heart has said there, there is no God, and this passage says we are all fools until Christ lays hold of us. And Paul answers the question here, how many Jews and Gentiles are righteous? And and he gives the answer in verse 10, that there's none. And and he gives the answer again in verse 11, that there's none. Twice in verse 11, that there's none. In verse 12, there's none who does good. Four times the expression none is used, and Alva J. McLean said that's the the negative side. The positive question also comes, uh, how many Jews and Gentiles are sinners? How many are righteous? None. How many are sinners? Well, the answer is found in in verse 9. Look at verse 9. What then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As well as in verse 12, all have turned aside. And verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world become guilty before God. None are righteous and all are sinners. None appears four times. All appears three times in this passage. And just so you know exactly what God means by those words, Paul underlines it with, with not even one. And he does that twice. There's none righteous, not even one. Don't even think about trying to find some way to squirrel a person in there under under that that, that title. And when you put this entire package together, uh, the passage together, there there are 12 universal indictments that God brings against the world and that summarizes the source of what Paul has already gone over in in chapters 1 and 2. Now, if you sat here for any length of time listening to chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, you probably already know that the, the Bible says that human beings are sinners. You probably already know that coming into this sermon and this passage. In fact, you probably already know that from personal experience. You, you've probably lived long enough to feel the sting of sin yourself. And, and as much as you want to blame it on somebody else or the, or the devil, like the Oscar guy this past week, you know, the guy the devil made him do it, uh, you probably know that, 
that it was your doing. At least you would acknowledge that without anybody else knowing, partly. Very few people will deny that they're sinners. Very few people that you talk to will say that, 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 that they haven't failed in, in some way. But, but that's not the point of Paul's argument here. Paul already knows that if you listen to him, you know that you're a sinner. What Paul here does is tell you why you're a sinner. And he explains the source of that sin. And he says you're actually bound fast by it. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul says all men are guilty before God. And, and if you, you pay attention, he focuses on the deeds and the desires that, that, that come from the, the, these two groups. I mean, the, the focus of chapter 1, uh, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored. There's the axe uh, among them. And that's, that's followed by this long list of evil deeds at the end of chapter 1. They're filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil. and They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're, they're gossips, they're slanders and on. It's a really long list of deeds and, and, and desires. In fact, the focus of, of chapter 2, to the, the, uh, Paul's uh, focus to the, to the moral man is you won't escape judgment because you, you, you possess the law when you're not practicing it, when your deeds don't match. God judge without partiality. He judges based on deeds and everyone's deeds. Well, short, Romans 2, 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So the deeds and the desires that come out of life, but, but chapter 3, he shows us where all of that comes from. All of our sinful deeds and desires as, as Jew and Gentile are sourced in our depravity and we are totally depraved. Paul now goes one step farther into the dungeon, into this final cell. And, and he shows us that not only do we, do we belong in this dark place, but we like it here. In fact, are you ready for this? Paul says, if someone came along and, and, with the key and, and opened the, the door to let us out, we wouldn't leave. We would sit there in our sin-filled squalor, uninterested in leaving the darkness and unable to desire the light. Paul actually gives the backstory to what John says in his gospel in chapter 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's why they, they love the darkness rather than the light. Their, their deeds were evil. And he goes on to say, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. In fact, opening the cell door is exactly what Jesus Christ did whenever he came. I mean, he came to set the captives free. He, he, he came to give beauty for ashes. And, and he came into his own. The ones who were supposed to be expecting him. The Jews who had the oracles of God, the promises and the prophecies. And, and his own received him not. He opened the door. And they refused to use the key. And it's what, every, what he does every day to sinners all over the world. He offers them the free grace of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. But... But they refuse to listen. They rather hold on to their sin in, in rejecting dismissal and they never even give it a, a second thought. It might be what you have done. It might be what you're doing this morning and, and God has you here to offer you mercy one more time. In chapter 3, 9 through 20, Paul reveals where this kind of rejection, where this kind of love for darkness comes from and he presses this argument to, to a crescendo and, and the crescendo is our real problem. We're not just guilty, we're godless. We're, you've not just committed sinful deeds and have sinful desires. You, you're in sin's grip. It, it reveals your, your, the totality of, 
of sin's effect on your life. You're, you're, you're totally enable. There's an absolute hatred of God, an unalterable love of sin, and unless God comes in and does something radical that only He can do, which was Jesus' message to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. You must have a spiritual birth or you have no hope whatsoever of escaping the cell and getting into the kingdom. Verses uh, 9 through, through 20 here is laid out as a court case. Um, verse 9 is the charge, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then the evidence is presented in verses 10 through 18. There's a brief deliberation in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, there's the deliberation and then there is the verdict in verse 20. Paul, together, if you this entire court scene, there's three declarations about the total depravity of man or about the totality of man's depravity. It's, it's revealed during these three segments of this trial, man's trial in light of God's righteousness, the sunlight coming into the dungeon. There's the universal charge against all, all people. That's at the headwaters in verse 9. And then there's the undeniable evidence against mankind, all these quotes from the Old Testament in verses 10 through 18, and it should be in italics in your Bible. And then there's the indisputable verdict from God and, and His law in light of both of those in verses 19 and 20. So universal charge, the undeniable evidence, and then the indisputable verdict. Let's... Let's look at the first one, the first charge, universal charge against all people. Verse, verse 9, what then, or what shall we conclude, some of your translations rightly say? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, Notice this is actually a conclusion of what Paul started, actually all the way back in chapter 1, and in verse 18, when, when he took us down into the dungeon. And he's continued there for, for two chapters. And verse 9 here, he says, uh, What shall we conclude then? Everything that I've just got done saying. So it's a conclusion of these two chapters, and it's also a bridge from his final point to the Jewish people. In verses 1 through 8, Paul just got done outlining the blessing and the promises of the Jews, that what they have as God's people. They possess the oracles of God, the, the promises and the prophecies about Christ's coming, and rather than, rather than having that blessing and using it, they didn't. And so he asked, do we have advantage then as it relates to judgment? Brings it back to that, that question they've asked before. The idea is, is Paul, okay, so are, are, you, are, are you again saying that we have a leg up before God? And Paul answers with, with no, not at all. He slams the door hard. Not at all. The word advantage is only used here in the, in the New Testament, and it means to have preeminence. Are we preeminent over other people? Do we have an advantage over other people? And the Jews did have privileges, and, and God will, will fulfill some of those promises that, that, that He made in the future. But they're not better off as it relates to sin Privileges or not, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, which is a, an even um, more inclusive word than just Gentiles, Jews and Greeks are all under sin, and the law confirms that. And Paul says, I've already shown that. And notice he calls it an accusation or, or a charge in verse 9. Are we better? Not at all. For we have already charged or we've already accused. This is a previous charge. We've already done this. Blow by blow in chapter 1 and chapter 2, which sets up this courtroom motif of charges and accusations. But the most important thing about this verse, notice Paul does not say everyone sins. He doesn't say that I've already charged that both Jews and Greeks sin. He says both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And that preposition changes everything. Hupa under hamartia, sin, under sin. It means to be arranged under something. Hupatasa, wives, hupatasa yourself to your own husbands. You, you arrange yourself under them. 
we have been arranged under the bondage of sin. To be enslaved to something. To be controlled by it internally. Paul is talking about our natures being under sin. He's talking about having a sin nature. Uh, when Jeff and I were, were in Israel, um, Rick Holland and I were witnessing to a Jewish man. And, and Rick was asking him leadingly, you know, so, so we were with this guy all day. So what exactly do, does a Jew do today for an atonement? The, to, the Torah requires an atonement. What, you, you clearly don't have a temple um, where sacrifice can be offered. You're not sacrificing animals in, in, anymore. In fact, when we're having this conversation, we're standing on the southern steps while we're talking to them, the, the steps that, that led up to the, to, the, to the temple. So it's this surreal kind of scene where there's, you know, these, these four Gentiles are standing there over these preserved ruins of, of the original steps up to the temple where the sacrifices would have been offered, probably where Peter preached Pentecost on the on the southern stairs, asking a Jewish man where he gets a covering for his sin. And after a few excuses by him, you know, parlays, he, he could tell we wouldn't be deterred. And, and one excuse he said was the rabbis said they understand that we don't have a temple today and that we can't sacrifice. And that brought our response of, you know, who gave unnamed rabbis the authority to change the Torah which clearly says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You're not shedding blood, so you're violating the Torah. And he made this shuddering statement. He said, well, that's the difference between Christians and Jews. As a Jew, I do not believe in original sin. I was not born a sinner. I believe as a Jew I was born good and have the free will to do right or wrong. To which Rick said, well, I guess you've never been a parent then. <laughs> because you wouldn't say humans aren't born with the sin nature if you've had a child. I was not born a sinner. Those words literally came out of his mouth. What a shocking statement to make. But, but to him it wasn't shocking at all. He, he didn't deny that he had sin. We just got done talking about the atonement and how, how even the fact that there wasn't a temple in his mind today because the Jewish people as a whole had, had sinned against God. He wasn't denying sin existed. He was saying that, that I'm not under sin. And no matter who you talk to, everyone will acknowledge that they do wrong things. They just wouldn't say that condemns them because everybody does it. Or they'll compare themselves to somebody else, always somebody worse. But Paul here doesn't just say everyone commits sins. He says everyone is under sin. Everyone is under its sway. Or as Luther called it, man has a bondage of the will. Luther said, to call a man without the Holy Spirit upright and God-fearing is the same as calling Bilal Christ. Do tell us how you feel, mild Martin. He, he always spoke his mind. I mean, you see the issue here? I mean, you see how deep this condemnation goes? It's not just deeds and desires. You see why all men have, have no excuse before God? While unless the gospel comes, there is no hope. I mean, the Bible doesn't deny that human beings can't do kind things or even things that, that conform to, to the standards of, of goodness. And it doesn't just say they commit sin. It says they're corrupted by sin. It's in them. And apart from God doing something to take that out, they're hopelessly locked up and they're blind and they won't come. And So he has to come to, to us. But if you know your Bible, you know that that didn't even solve the problem, did it? Because God did come. And he came in with the Jewish people that knew that he was coming. And they didn't recognize him and they didn't worship him. Even those Jews had to have their eyes opened by the Spirit when he was in their presence. And it's the same for any sinner today. I mean, even when you take them to the Bible and bring God near to them through the Scriptures, they're unable to recognize him apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit that, 
opens their eyes. And that's exactly what Paul said back in verse 29. Look, look back at verse 29 of chapter 2. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but, but God. Paul, Paul's already said a true believer is one who's inward, uh, a believer at the heart level, and that's taking place by the Spirit, not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual one. And without that work, man is totally depraved. This is not the only place in the Bible that it declares this truth. It's, it's, a, it's a great place to go, which is why you memorize the Romans road here and why you take people here, because it's, it's kind of all of these truths condensed into, into these, you know, these, these seven or eight verses. But Genesis speaks about the total depravity of man, and in the Gospels speak about that. Genesis 6, how bad is the fall? Well, it's so bad that the first scene that you have outside of the garden is murder, and just a few chapters later, God wipes out the whole, the whole of the earth and starts over, if you will. Listen to total depravity here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen to all of those, those adverbs piled, piled up. And verse 6 says, The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth in his heart was grieved. And look at what Jesus says in, in, in Mark 7. Here's total depravity. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds the evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within. And they defile the man. So both Moses and Jesus declare that man is totally corrupted. Job said it this way, mankind drinks iniquity like water. And the point is not that water is easy to drink, so it's easy for us to sin. The point is water for mankind is necessary, and you can't live without water. And, and so we're so corrupt we can't live long without sin. We, we depend upon it. We, it's part of our DNA. It's part of our makeup. And like man is mostly water and must have it, sinners are mostly sin and must have it. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they became sinners. Adam and Eve were, were the only two people that could actually claim what, what is called free will. They're the only ones that were actually innocent. They were created before the curse, before the fall, they were created in a perfect place. God declares they're good, and they never experienced sin. And they were innocent, and they were good, and then they fell. And when they fell, they became evil. They, they were sinful, sinners after that. They were the only two innocent human beings ever created. But every human being since Adam is not that way. You have a will, but it's corrupt, and it follows your corrupt desires. You're not like Adam and Eve. You've been tainted by the, by the fall. And we don't start good and then become evil when we're born into this world. When we sin, we prove what we already are, that we're sinners and that we're under sin. Joel James said you could think of it this way. We're not like a car that starts in perfect alignment and then hits a pothole in life and the tire gets, get, gets out, of, out of line. We pull out of the garage with one wheel going this way and one wheel going that way. I mean, the reason we hit the potholes is we can't steer. And Paul explained in more detail what, what he means by being in bondage to sin, under the power of sin in chapter 7. But this is central to his message, which is why he brings us here to this point right before he, he says, but now, in verse 21. Before he gives us the answer, the solution. And it's very different from other Jewish and Gentile teachers of his day. Rabbis and Greek philosophers spoke of sin and even the corruption of man. They would acknowledge that they did wrong, but, but they wouldn't say, like the Apostle Paul, that, that all mankind is under 
sin. And, and they would apply, these rabbis and others would apply all types of, uh, of solutions. You know, taste not, touch not, handle not, the Greek philosophy. I mean, yeah, you, or they would say, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, you can do whatever you want in your body. They were libertines because the body doesn't affect the, you know, the, the, the soul. And the Apostle Paul says that all are under sin. Under sin. They maintain that, that man had within himself the ability to, to change. That's what the rest of the world says. They believe like that Jewish man, the philosophers and the rabbis of Paul's day. There was a spark of goodness in all of us. They, they had Walt Disney theology. Just, just look in your heart, follow your heart, and look inside. All we need is the right circumstances, the right information, the right environment to start to choose to do right. You just need someone to come along and open the, the dungeon door, and then we would run out into the light. And Paul says if that's what you believe, which is what that Jewish man believed, you, you place yourself in direct opposition to the Bible. Because God makes clear, not only here, but throughout all of Paul's writings, that man is unable to do that apart from God's intervention. Let me just give you a, a sampling. Let me overwhelm you a bit with, with Scripture. Because this is not the only place that Paul teaches this truth. In Galatians 3.22, he says, Scripture has locked up everyone under the, under the control of sin. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. There's that same phrase again. He mentions it not only in Galatians, but also in Ephesians, many places. But here, you probably know this one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Notice, here's your condition. You're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Here is the behavior that followed, that, that being under sin. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and... We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Spiritually dead, walking in trespasses. Galatians 4.8 says that you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Uh, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves. E Ephesians 4.17-20 says you were marked by futility in your thinking and darkening, uh, darkened understanding. You were alienated from God, insensitive, sensual, impure. That was in them because of the hardness of their hearts, being calloused, having given themselves over. Colossians 1.12, I'm sorry, 1.21 says that you were alienated from God, enemies in your minds and in your evil behavior. Colossians 3, 5-9, your previous lives were marked with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, which is idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy communication with, with, with lying. And, 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 and no one would say, yeah, yeah, I don't doubt that I have some of those things in my life. And Paul says that those things come out of your life because you're enslaved to sin. Or Titus 3 says you were, you were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures. And you're even in denial about it. People will listen to those lists and they'll, they'll pick one thing out of it and say, well, well I mean, I'm, I'm not a murderer. As if that's the only sin that God judges. Or that somehow that justifies you against the other 99 in the list. Now the Bible provides a very clear picture of, of an unsaved person before Christ. They're not good people that do bad things. They're not those made in the image of God with a little spark of goodness and they only need the gospel to get them to choose right. They're, you're in bondage. You're slave. You're these things by nature. You're dead. You're futile in your thoughts. You're alienated from God. You, you were living by gratifying the cravings of your flesh. You liked it. And Paul provides evidence of this from the Old Testament to, to prove it, which is this second declaration. The second declaration about the, the, 
the totality of man's depravity is the undeniable evidence that's provided in the Bible against mankind. Let's in verses 10 through 18. Look at verse 10 if you would. As it is written, as it stands written, it's, it's in the perfect tense, and he's written where? It's written in the Old Testament. What's written? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned away, turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. After he talks about the condition being under sin, now he moves into what comes out of their mouths. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And now he moves to to, to their behaviors and and how they harm other people. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their paths. In the path of peace, they have not known. And here's the concluding statement of they do all this because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Twelve descriptions given there, listed with the force of a prosecutor's opening argument. We'll break it down into four sections because they, they go together. There's an order here. Paul doesn't just indiscriminately quote passages. He builds a case. He gives this universal deadness in verses 10 and 12, uh, then this unjust dialogue and ungodly deeds, and then that all comes from this unyielding disposition. But all of them come from the Old Testament, which obviously applies to that Jewish man and a Jewish person as well as a Gentile. There is mankind's universal deadness in verses 10 and 12, that's as far as we'll get today. All of the statements in verse 10, verses 10, 11, and, and 12, there's six of them. They, they all have to do with man's inability to know or seek or care about God. It talks about his spiritual ignorance. It talks about his, his lack of seeking, even his inability to seek and or even care about, about God. That leads to these un, this unjust dialogue and ungodly deeds. Here's the scriptural evidence of your heart condition. Again, as it is written, it is in the perfect tense. It's six different Old Testament passages woven together here, many, most from the Psalms, and several are quoted from the Septuagint. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul applies it to his current argument. And he gives us the, the purpose. He's, he's doing this in verse 19. Drop down to verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, what law? The, the law that he just quoted. He's using the law in a general sense here. All of this quote from the Old Testament. And we know that the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? What's the result? So that every mouth may be closed in all the world. So not just Jews, but all the world may become accountable to God. Every mouth, all flesh, are to be silenced by God's word here. And Paul starts with Psalm 14, 1 through 3. There is none righteous, not even one. Not David, who was a man after God's own heart. Not Isaiah, who gave the prophecies of the Messiah. Not Moses, who couldn't enter the promised land. Not Abraham, who was a liar. Not Noah, who was shown the grace of the Lord and got drunk as soon as he got off the the ark. Or Adam, and not you. Not a baby in the womb, who's never seen the... never been in the world. Or or an 88-year-old man who's learned some lessons and now is wise about about life. Not a Jew, not a Gentile, not someone raised in a Christian home, not someone outside of a Christian home. As Rick Holland said, not Gandhi, not Mother Teresa, not Muhammad, and not your sweet grandmother. It's none, not even one, that's compared against the bar of God and comes up with a positive result. You say, what about the person that seems to do good? 
or, or that child. I heard someone arguing this this past week that, that's innocent of doing anything by, by their, their sinful acts. They haven't even lived yet. Notice Paul's choice of words. He says, there is none righteous. And to be righteous means to be righted to God, compared to God and being, being right with God. And, and the Bible makes a difference between innocence and righteousness. And a child is innocent in the fact that they haven't experienced certain acts, but they're still a sinner at heart and still rebellious, and they're therefore condemned. I, I remember learning that not everyone has good anthropology, special, especially parents. Uh, in the first church that I pastored, uh, I think I've shared this with you before, but during the announcements, uh, I said, let's congratulate so-and-so on the birth of their new baby girl, and let's also pray for them, because as Martin Luther said to, you know, to Katie at the birth of their first child, why, Katie, we've begotten ourselves a heathen. And the mother came up to me after the service, none too pleased, and said, don't you call my baby a heathen. She's an angel. And I didn't say anything at the moment, you know, just trying to defuse the situation, but I thought, yeah, she's an angel, all right. She's a fallen one. And I bet that mother sang a different tune six months later when that little baby spit its milk out and pooped itself and screamed to be obeyed, right? You know. That's why Rick Holland went there with that Jewish man. You see, you can be a sinner without experiencing sin. You can be under sin without it manifesting. You're not as evil to, here this morning. You haven't done the same deeds as Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or, or whoever. You may not have ever smacked somebody like Will Smith did. But that doesn't make you righteous. Just because you haven't experienced every aspect of, of how sin is manifested. Some of you were blessed to be born in a Christian home. Some of you were like Jews where you had the oracles of God and that restrained some of the sinfulness in you. It's the purpose of the law, to restrain sin, but it doesn't change the heart. Take the restraints of the law off and watch what the human heart does. And yet righteousness is to be right with God internally and externally, and that's what you need to get into heaven. It doesn't mean that human beings can't do things that aren't kind or conform to God's patterns of goodness in some ways, but these actions, still tainted by evil, are not done for God's glory. There was only one person who was righteous, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And even worse, Paul says that there's none righteous other than than Christ. Even worse, we don't even realize our condition. Look at verse 11. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's the charge that stands, and then here's more evidence. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Paul says that there's no one who who understands and, and seeks. That means... No human being comes to the truth on their own, apart from God. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 1, where there's general revelation. I'm the creator, I'm the God that that made you. What do men do with that? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, and they make gods in their own image. He's bringing his argument to a crescendo here, just like Moses did in Genesis 6, where he said the thoughts and intents of man's heart was continually evil. This is universal condemnation that goes to Jews and Gentiles. And the reason that they're like that is it's inside of them, the universal problem for all people, they're under sin. And unless God intervenes in a supernatural way, none would come to God's rescue operation. No one, no human being seeks God on his own because he has a heart problem. To lack understanding here means to be spiritually ignorant. They're spiritually ignorant. MacArthur said, even if men somehow had the ability to achieve achieve God's perfect righteousness, they wouldn't know what it is or how to go about attaining it. Just ask a person, ask any person on the street, just walk up to a random stranger and say, what is good? Or what is righteous? Would you describe that for me? 
And you'll get an answer, but it's likely to be very far from what God says. And then turn around and ask a, a, a completely different person, and you're likely, likely to get a completely different answer. Because they don't know. <laughs> that's why our world is in such a mess. It's neglected the Bible, and that's the only place that you can understand what is spiritually good. It takes the Bible to know that. And God's outlined it for us. But the problem is no man seeks it on their own. They're spiritually ignorant, and no man seeks it. That's what else he says. That's, that's the other thing that he says in verse 11. There's none that understands to correct the problem. There's none righteous. There's none that even understands his problem. And there's none that seeks for God to fix the problem. Now, what a statement that is. There's no one who seeks God. It, that, those seven words just jettisoned about 30 years of modern evangelicalism called the seeker-sensitive movement, designing churches about, around seekers. And it also jettisons most of modern free will theology. This is a quote from Psalm 14.2. Let me read it to you from the Psalms. Here's what Psalm 14.2 says. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there was any who understand who seek after God. And the answer is then given in verse 3. Here's God's conclusion. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's where Paul got his theology applied here in chapter 3. You say, well, it sure seems like, it sure looks like a lot of people are all over the world seeking something. I mean, they say they're seeking God. Uh, I mean, the Buddhist flies his little colorful flags all over the mountains, and they, I mean, they pray and they do these things before they go up on the mountain, and the, 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 the Muslim prays five times a day, and the man that I witnessed to on the streets said he believes in God, he's seeking God, but he, you know, he just can't find him. What about them? Well, I would say you let God interpret what they're seeking. Not your faulty evaluation or their faulty evaluation. You let Scripture say what they're doing, not the sinner themselves. Because Scripture makes clear that all of those religious efforts and all of that seeking and all of those systems is actually an attempt to escape the one true and living God, not to come to it which is exactly what Romans 1 has already said. They suppress the truth and make gods in their own image. And they suppress that truth while, while they reject the, the truth about the real one. You ever heard someone say in response to the Scriptures, well, that's not the kind of God I believe in. Or, I couldn't believe in a God like that. And Paul says, you're right. You can't. And you won't apart from God's intervention. And if you don't understand this anthropology that, that Paul is giving here, the, the basis and the constitution of mankind after the fall, you're going to get into all kinds of error, even as a Christian, even in your witnessing, even in, even in how you structure churches. I mean, the, the list is endless. Apart from God's true intervention... There's none that understands and there's none that, that seeks. And we'll finish this up next week. But here's the thought I want to leave you with if you're here this morning and you're a believer. As you're sitting here this morning, that's exactly what He has done for most of you. He has intervened. You're sitting here listening to a 50-minute exposition of God's Word and you love it. And you want more of it. And the message is even how sinful you, you, you were before Christ. And, and as you listen to this, your heart is saying, yes, yes, it's exactly what I was. All that and then some. I still feel some of the tendencies, the hangover. And you're rejoicing that this intervention has taken place, and you know it's taken place. How did that take place? It wasn't just because you woke up and got smart one day or because you sought God. It was because He drew, him, drew you to Himself. 
And he convinced you of your sinful condition and the condition that Paul describes here, here today. And, and he granted you a new heart, new eyes to see, new desires to motivate your, your will. And you cried out in faith for mercy and, and he gave it to you full and free. And now you don't try to run from him, you run to him whenever you sin. Because he washed you clean. And you can't wait to be with him forever. And That is the power of the gospel that Paul is preaching. That's the power of Jesus Christ. So much power that, that a sinner by nature, by birth, dead in their sins, ignorant spiritually with no desire to seek God can be transformed. But if you don't understand that's your condition, then you're going to seek other things that are just cheap alternatives. You want to be transformed? Then listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Do what He says. And He'll change you. He'll make you a new creation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Bible. How foolish we are. So many times we, we pontificate about things, we philosophize about the Bible, we open our mouths and we should put our hands over it and go to the book. It's perfect. It, it brings light. The entrance of your word brings light. It's pure. It shows us the bad as well as the good. It, it doesn't gloss over our, our condition. It's otherworldly. And as Psalm 19 says, it converts the soul. Faith comes by hearing. Lord, hearing by the, the word of Christ. So thank you for the truth. As much as it humbles us, we, we rejoice in the fact that it, it, it exalts our Savior. And that's what we do this morning. I pray, Father, for anyone who is here struggling, trying to, to cease from sin, stop, stopping their sin in using the just external measures, if they've never been transformed and never seen their bondage, I pray today that they would. And I pray that every believer will rejoice once again in what you have saved us from and prepare our hearts for the light that's about to break. Verse 21, in Jesus' name, amen.